All right. Everybody talk to somebody, I hope. Great. Um, Let's turn to James. Uh, If you have it, let's stand together and read God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you right now open our eyes to your word. Lord, we trust that you would speak into our hearts, that you would help us to see you, to know to know you and to love you more today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please have a seat. Now, let me open up this morning by asking this question. How many of you grew up with a perfect older sibling? Okay, anybody? Okay. How many of you were the perfect older sibling? Okay, yeah, that's, wow. Okay, we have a lot of those... uh, you know, um, my sister is, uh, I'm the middle child, okay, and that might explain a lot about me if you've been wondering things. My sister is three years older than me, and she's that classic firstborn, you know, eager to please, uh, overachiever. Uh, when we were growing up, she never got into trouble. Uh, she made all A's, she played violin, and it was just kind of annoying how nice she was to everybody. Okay, and it was super annoying to have her as the perfect older sister, you know, starting in maybe the second grade, I think she spent multiple hours every single night doing homework. Okay, like second grade, maybe three, four hours. And, and so her grades were always perfect. And, and because we shared that same last name, as, we, as I moved along up in school, you, if, you, if you have older siblings, you know this, right? Before you even stepped into a classroom, you had a reputation because of your last name. And so the teachers would know me through my sister before I had ever met them. Um, And and what they soon found out was that I didn't quite live up to that same legend that she set forward, except for in the grades department, okay? Um, But, you know, I made A's just like she did, but I never did any homework, like, ever, okay, at all. Um, This is up through, like, probably up until college. I don't think I spent more than maybe 30 minutes at home doing any assignment. Um, And so, you know, the teachers would pass out assignments. I'd finish it right there as they they gave it to us, or maybe next morning in a homeroom. If you're really pushing it, it might be like, you know, finishing the the paper as the teacher's collecting it in the same class, you know, period. Um, In in fact, when I was in sixth grade, so this is the last year of elementary school, um, the guidance counselor wanted to put on some sort of a school-wide assembly encouraging students of, like, to be better students. And they looked through our, our transcripts, and, and she saw that I had never made it anything lower than an A, and so came up to me and asked me if I would be willing to share with the school how I made my A's. <laughs> and, and then when I started to explain to her my methodology... Um, and how I actually got the grades that I did, she immediately realized the slacker that I was, okay, and, and how little work ethic I had, and that assembly was canceled. Um, you know, I was, and I still am not, the type of student that you want to platform and say, hey, be like that guy. Okay, if you want to know how to do your homework, please don't come and talk to me. Um, 
But, you know, so the perfect older sister, and we're getting to this, we say this because our text this morning comes from the letter, really the, the book, it's really a letter of James. And, and James, this is widely believed to be the oldest book in the New Testament, okay, older than any of the Gospels, and James is universally thought to be the brother of, guess who? Jesus. Okay, talk about the perfect older sibling. It doesn't get any more perfect than Jesus, right? And really, he's not his brother fully. He's his half-brother, you know, but they share, they share the same parents, Mary and Joseph. Uh, Jesus didn't come about through the two of them. He came through Mary and the Holy Spirit. But anyway, if anyone knew what it's like to have a perfect older brother, that would be James in a truer way than any of us could ever know. Okay, and Jesus was also, a, for those of you who are the older brother, Jesus is a better older brother than you. Okay, that's, that's undisputed. Um, but it's important to know as we look at this book that James was not always a believer in Jesus. Now, James did, um, in fact, think that Jesus, as he was growing up, was crazy. There's a, there's a period of time recorded in the Gospels as Jesus begins his public ministry where he's out teaching and healing and all these people are flocking to him. And they're starting to, to, to whisper that, that he might be the Messiah, that he might be God. And, and James and, um, and his brothers and his mother come to Jesus and they try to get him to stop. Like they tell him to be quiet, to shut up because you're drawing way too much attention to yourself. And remember, this is first century. And so, you know, you had the Roman uh, Empire that's, that's kind of the over, over top of Jerusalem and Judea. And uh, so they could come in, and if there's any sort of anything that appears to be a rebellion, they would come in, like, en masse and just, like, squash that thing, you know, bring in soldiers and, and just kill everybody. Okay, or you also had the religious leaders, the, the rulers of the synagogues, that if they heard or, or suspected that you were teaching some sort of Pharisee, you could get excommunicated and also your family. And so sort of out of this self-preservation, James and his family tried to get Jesus to stop because they did not understand who Jesus really was. See, everybody at that time was searching for some sort of hope. They're searching for some sort of salvation. They're really actually looking for Jesus, but nobody recognized him when he showed up. And remember, nobody could know Jesus better than, than James. Like, think, as they're growing up, they shared a, a family table. You know, they shared the same teachers. They shared the same parents. Uh, most likely, first century, they shared the same bed together. And so you think, if anybody could have figured out who Jesus was... It would be James. And yet, as we see, James completely missed Jesus. See, he knew just about everything that you could possibly know about Jesus. Every little tidbit, every fact, every piece of detail, information about the life of Jesus, James knew that, but he didn't really know Jesus. And, and I'm not sure about you, but that's, that's kind of a little bit of my testimony as well. Like growing up, I knew a whole lot about who Jesus was. I knew a lot of the facts. I knew the answers. I could find you stuff in the Bible. But it wasn't until God opened my eyes that I really knew Jesus. Like personally knew him for who he was. And now as he's writing, we see that James knows Jesus. 
James had encountered Jesus, and now James realizes who Jesus had always been. Now, even though they shared the same mother, okay, and, and, and now James is calling Jesus the Christ or Messiah, the, the Lord, the King, and, and what, do you call, what do you call the brother of the King? You're not, you know, we're, we're in America, but there are kings and queens that live places, right? Um, and the brother of the king is called a prince. Okay, so, so James, biologically, in a better way than any of us could be, is a prince because he's the brother of the king of the universe. And yet, as James opens his letter, did you see, did you catch how he addresses himself? He said, James, a servant, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So James, the prince, is actually identifying himself as a servant. And his perfect older brother, without any sense of jealousy, without any sort of sibling rivalry, he is now committing him as his Lord and Christ. And so because James knew Jesus better than anyone else knew Jesus, that's kind of a big deal, isn't it? You know, if, if you told me, if you started to call my sister, as great as she is, God, I could start to give you some information about her that would sort of poke holes in that theory, <laughs> right? Like, there are some stories that I could really easily, you know, shred her reputation um, because she's still pretty nice, but she's not perfectly nice. And James would be that same way. You know, if Jesus wasn't perfect, guess who would have told us about that? It'd be James. Hey, Jesus, remember that time? We all have that friend, right, that likes to bring those things up. Hey, remember that time you did this? Or remember that time? You know, so if anybody would have known that Jesus wasn't who he said he was, it would have been James. Instead, what we see is something entirely different, is that James has this deeper relationship with Jesus, and he is serving him with humility and with joy. This is an acknowledgement of the truth that James now knows Jesus in a different way, that he sees him in a different way than he did before. And so the book of James really is a letter of practical theology that helps us address the question of how do we follow Jesus in a world that has rejected Jesus and is increasingly hostile to Christians. You know, it hadn't been that long since Jesus himself was crucified right there in Jerusalem. And James is talking to these people who he says are in dispersion, which means that, you know, following the death and crucifixion of Jesus, the church began to almost immediately become persecuted. There's a story about this guy named Saul. You probably heard of him. And he starts getting people together and they go um, and, and round up and arrest and even have Christians killed for following Jesus. And so we see that this early church is scattered to the far parts of the empire and people are living in fear. And, and what it meant for them to follow Jesus was that, that they had lost their businesses. They had lost their homes. They had lost their community. Remember, they had been kicked out of their synagogues oftentimes. They had even, you know, this, this caused arguments and dissensions within families. So to follow Jesus costs them dearly. And so James is now writing to these people who are scattered. Hey, what does it look like to live following Jesus in a difficult place, in a difficult world? And so I think this is applicable to us today. 
And it's almost jarring where the way that James opens his letter, okay, after he addresses who he is and who he's writing to, the very first thing he says is, count it all joy. Consider this joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. I'm guessing if you follow Jesus or have been in a church for a while, you've probably heard this slogan before. Um, you might even have a coffee cup at home that has like this phrase on it, you know, count it all joy. And, 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 and for some people, it kind of turns into this sort of mantra. But, but when we consider what, what's going on in the lives of the early Christians, it almost seems preposterous. Like, James, what are you smoking, man? Well, that's how we would say it, right? Like, like what are you thinking? How can you tell them to look at the, the bad things in life, to look at their trials, to look at their circumstances? And you say of various kinds, which means all sorts of things, everything that happens to you, how could you possibly say that I should consider that joy? He doesn't just sound overly optimistic. He sounds like a man that's delusional and disingenuous and, and living in denial. Like, maybe James needs to talk to somebody. Okay. This, this seems to be right up there with the words. You know, if you're familiar with Seinfeld, there's this great mantra, serenity now, that people just repeat over and over until they go crazy. Um, Bobby McFerrin has a song called Don't Worry, Be Happy. Uh, if you know that song, it's just crazy. Hey, don't worry, be happy. Whatever happens, if your rent goes up, if your life's falling apart, your family leaves you, don't worry, be happy, mom. Right? Sir James Paul McCartney, he wrote this great song called Let It Be. Or there's even like the Christianized versions of these things, which is, you know, something like God's got a plan or God's in control. And sometimes people use these as just kind of like mantras that they say to each other. They don't even know what they're saying, but, but like they, they kind of disassociate themselves from the pain of what's going on in life. And they just kind of repeat over and over again. I don't know if any of you do that. I've done that before. You know, but James isn't full of it. And he's also not immune to the troubles and struggles of the world. He's not just sitting back with a drink in his hand and his head in the sand and going, hey, don't worry about it. Let's all just be happy together. You know, James is talking to people that he knows. He's talking to people that he cares about. In fact, he writes and addresses, you know, he called Jesus his Lord. And he called himself a servant in relation to his brother Jesus. But these people who've been scattered, these people who are being persecuted, he calls them his brothers. He said, you know who my real family is? It's you guys that are going through it right now. Like, I understand you, and I know you, and I love you, and I care about you. His family is in trouble, and James knows that, and he feels it, and yet at the same time, he is still saying, consider it to be joy when you face the trials and struggles that you face. So joy. You know, joy means gladness. This is something that everybody is searching for, isn't it? That everybody is trying to get to. And if you think about life today, especially in comparison to like the first century, you know, by any metric you want to use, okay, any, any single one, we are some of the most privileged people to ever walk the face of this earth. Okay, we have access to better health care, better education. Uh, we've got more stuff to eat in our pantry than people do uh, other places, you know, for like an entire year in some cases. We enjoy wealth and prosperity and peace relatively. And freedom. And the list kind of goes on and on and on. And yet, I'm guessing that when you look around you and you talk to people there's probably not a lot of joy that you encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. 
You know, there's a, you kind of see it all over the place that there are people that are so incredibly upset and dissatisfied. And it's like we have the entire world at our hands, and yet it's, it's like the, the phrase from Bono, um, you too, like we still haven't found what we're looking for. You know, Huntsville, you, you may know this, the number one city to live in in America, right? Number one. How many people do you know that are walking around just so joyful because they live in the best city in the face of the world? <laughs> and yet what we see is that it's possible to have everything together on the outside, to have every material need met, while at the same time have things not okay inside of us and not okay in our world and not okay in our society. We see anxiety and loneliness and confusion and hatred and paranoia and depression and rage and fear and pain and grief and loss. These are things that are felt by people who have nothing, and they're also things that are felt by people with everything. In every city, in every class, every neighborhood, every school, every business, every church, every race, every age, every political party, people are experiencing these things. And not only are Christians not immune from suffering, but Jesus actually gives us this great thing where he says, um, you know what, if you follow me, you'll probably suffer more. James doesn't say count it all joy if you experience sufferings of many kinds. He says, but count it all joy when you experience suffering. Jesus warned his disciples, in the world you will have trouble because of me and because of your faith in me. He explained there was going to be persecution, that we actually have this enemy that exists to steal, kill, and to destroy that, they could, that people could follow Jesus and, and, and as a result lose their homes and lose their families because of him and his gospel. And see, Jesus didn't want his people to believe that lie, which is sort of the prosperity gospel lie, right? That, you know, everything was going to be easy once you follow Jesus. That was, that was what the Pharisees had taught. You know, that, that you, you can live this great material life, and as you do that, you can just sit back and realize that you have been so blessed by God that, that you don't need to do anything else, right? That God just wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy, and, and if you aren't experiencing those things, that that's just a sign that, you know what, your faith isn't strong enough, and you just need to try a little bit harder or do a little bit more or think a little bit better. And James is saying that, that stuff's just lies, Right, that is not where we find joy. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that prosperity is a bad thing. Right? That, like, it's not good to have nice things because I think we all like to have nice things. And, and we also see over and over through Scripture what happens um, when people like, are obedient to God that the Lord can bless them. But we also see over and over through Scripture what happens when people get everything that they want. Like, what happens when people experience prosperity? What happens when people have everything that they need is that so often they become complacent and they start to rely upon themselves and they forget who God is and that relationship that that they have with God is less and less important to them because they can rely more and more on themselves. We become proud and self-reliant and we grow spiritually cold. And, and then, you know, we turn on God the moment that life turns on us because life is always going to turn on us at some point. So James tells us, hey, if you're part of my family, the family of God, 
if you know God as your father and Jesus Christ as your king and as your savior, then whatever you experience, count it all joy. Consider it to be joy. But how is that actually possible? Well, in the, there's this book called The Voice of the Heart, and in it, Dr. Chip Dodd writes about the feelings that we experience as human beings. And he lists out these eight feelings, and, and they're hurt, loneliness, sadness, anger, fear, shame, guilt, and gladness. You're probably thinking these, I, I just read that quickly. If you were counting, there's eight things, and only one of them seems to be something that we want. Right? We want gladness. How many of you want sadness or loneliness or anger or fear or shame or guilt, right? Um, But what he talks about is that that each of these things that we experience, each of these feelings that we have, even though they appear to be negative, are actually emotions that help to push us towards fullness, actually push us towards God. Here's what he says. He says, if you're hurt, that leads you to healing, If you're lonely, that helps move us towards intimacy. If we're sad, that helps us to express value and honor. Like the more that we love somebody, the more sad we are when we lose them in our lives. When we're anger, it kind of pushes us to hunger for life and helps us to respond to injustice. When we're afraid, that wakens us up to danger and leads us into wisdom. When we experience shame, it points us towards humility and mercy. When we have guilt, it helps to bring about forgiveness. And then when we have gladness, that proves the hope of our heart to be true. So healing and intimacy and value and honor and life and vitality and wisdom and humility and mercy and forgiveness and hope. See, those things aren't emotions, but they can be produced from our emotions. We could really do a whole sermon series on each of those things. But the point is that everything that we experience, regardless of how painful it is in the moment, can actually lead us to something better. Struggle and strife make that reward sweeter. You know, kindergarten graduation is cute. College graduation, that's an accomplishment. You know, the the more we suffer, the more we strive. It's like that tough workout in the gym. You know, I don't go to the gym too often, but, but the times that I did, the next day I felt so great because every part of me was so sore. And if you go back the next day, it's really going to hurt, and it hurts so you don't go back the next day. But if you wait a few weeks and you do it again, you're going to be sore all over again. Okay? But you're, but you're not really getting any stronger. James says that testing of our faith, that when we experience trials, that actually produces steadfastness, which is endurance and constancy, that we're not able to be swerved into different um, purposes, and that we actually develop a loyalty to our faith. Even the greatest trials and sufferings can lead us closer to Jesus. And so how do we ensure that those things that we experience, that they make us instead of break us? Because I think we can all agree that that our trials in life can break us. You know, we know people that they are broken because of the suffering that they've experienced. Well, the the answer to this, just as the answer to anything else, I think, is that we look to Jesus and the joy of Jesus. If you have a Bible, I just encourage you to flip over a couple pages to Hebrews chapter 12. This is um, back the other way. So if you're on James, it's like maybe one page turn. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It reads like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight 
and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, there was no celebration at the cross except for by those people who put Jesus there. The followers of Jesus who were bold enough or crazy enough to actually walk with him all the way through Golgotha and witness his final moments, they saw a pain and a sorrow unlike anything the world had ever seen before. And we remember that Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. He didn't want to endure what he endured. He knew what it was going to cost him. He's crying out to his father in the garden and he's sweating blood because he knows what he has to experience. And this is not something pleasant. And he's begging, Lord, if there's any other way, please make the way. He knew the physical and emotional and spiritual agony that awaited him just a day later. He'd even told his followers before his death, hey, truly, truly, I say to you, you're going to weep and lament while the world rejoices at my death. And the world rejoiced. And the friends of Jesus wept and lamented. They felt it. They experienced his death. Their joy from the, the previous Palm Sunday, those few days before, was completely Gone, And they crumbled as he cried out, it is finished, and gave up his spirit. But but just as Jesus' words didn't end there, they didn't stay in their sorrow. See, he said, said, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. He said, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And on the third day, that sorrow was replaced by joy as they discovered the empty grave and their risen Lord Jesus. How deep was their sorrow and now how deep was their joy in knowing that Jesus was alive and that everything that he had said was true, that he was exactly who he said he was. So that was a joy they could not have known if not for the trial they had experienced on the other side. There's a little, a little girl who grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. She was the daughter of an Olympic wrestler. Uh, she was quite the athlete. She loved a horseback ride. She loved to go swimming. She loved to, to play tennis. But at the age of 17, she, she dove into the shallow waters of the Chesapeake Bay. And she fractured her spine and has been a paraplegic for the rest of her life. You know, for over 50 years, she's been paralyzed from the shoulders down. And there's been terrible pain Physically and emotionally, she experienced anger and depression, contemplated suicide, and doubted her faith. And there continues to be great sorrow. But through all of this, God has used this woman, who you may know her name, Johnny Erickson Tata. Okay, her story and her trauma to minister to people all over the world about the gospel of Jesus. She has a ministry called Johnny and Friends in which she shares the deep love of Jesus to people who experience special needs, to families who are going through very difficult times. And she's been in a wheelchair now for for over 40 years. And she says this about her experience. She said, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven, put it in a little corner, and then in my new perfect glorified body, 
standing on grateful, glorified legs. I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know what I mean it, that I mean it, because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings, and I'll say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble, because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the blessing, the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. So I think we all have these stories, don't we? We've all experienced pain and we've all experienced suffering and yet we can look back on things in our life that have happened and see how God has used even the worst things in our life to bring us closer to him which ultimately leads us into joy. Those woundings which have brought us to the end of ourselves and closer to him and it doesn't make any sense at all apart from Jesus. And sometimes it doesn't even make any sense at all in this world. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that, that you just need to put on the happy face. But, but what the gospel is saying to us is that the Lord is working things out to bring you full joy in a way that you can never experience if it wasn't for your sufferings. The writers in the New Testament, they write about suffering and joy together hand in hand all throughout the scripture. And the reason that they do that is because it is true. Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. He says this little thing that we all cling to, right? That God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And if it, doesn't, if it wasn't for Jesus, that doesn't make any sense at all. Peter writes in this, you rejoice though for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And James says here, count it all joy. So how do we count it all joy? How do we experience that full, complete joy is that the answer is, quite simple, is that we run to Jesus. We abide in Jesus, and we know Jesus. Jesus said this to us. He said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. See, full joy only comes from knowing Jesus in that same way that James knew Jesus, trusting in him and believing him to be the Lord and believing him to be the Christ And that when we do, we find this beautiful thing that every circumstance, every trial, every suffering, everything that brings us to the end of ourselves actually brings us closer to him. And those things are guaranteed to produce joy in the life of those who know and love Jesus. It's there at the trial of the cross that his death actually brings us life. And even our deepest sorrow is turned to an unending joy. See, at the cross, we're reminded that his deepest joy was what? What was it that he looked forward to? What was the joy that he saw on the other side of the cross? It was you. It was his church, his bride, that we could be adopted into his family, but only because of what he experienced. Because of his trial, we can have joy unthinkable. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning, and I think a lot of us are, are experiencing some trials. 
Lord, we know people that are just right in the thick of it. And a lot of us know people who are so longing for joy that they will do just about anything. But Jesus, we trust and we hope and we pray that those trials that we experience would lead us closer to you. Lord, as they do, we could find joy. We could find peace. We could find hope in Jesus. Lord, open our eyes to who you are. Let us lay aside that sin that clings so closely to us and let us run towards Jesus who for the joy that was set before him for us, his bride, his family, endured the cross. We pray in his name. Amen.